All right, Zechariah chapter 1. Zechariah chapter 1. I've had so much fun studying these things out. One of the things that's hard sometimes, studying it out is one thing, but putting it together in a way that will help you guys, that's, that's another thing. So get Zechariah chapter 1 and then get 1 Corinthians chapter 2. So put your marker there in Zechariah 1. We're going to do 1 Corinthians 2 to learn our method of study. Verse 12, 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 12. Now we have, we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit which is of God, that we might know the things that are freely given to us of God, which things also we speak, not in the words which man's wisdom teacheth, but which the Holy Ghost teacheth, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. All right, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. And so it's the Holy Spirit that teaches us the things of God by comparing spiritual things with spiritual. So we're going to go to another passage, all right, that, that helps us to understand our method of Bible study. So we start at 1 Corinthians 2, verses 12 and 13. Who knows what passage we're going to go to next? John 6, 63. I might actually stay in this job now. John 6, 63. This is that famous passage that has caused people so much trouble on eating the body and drinking the blood of Jesus. And it shouldn't be confusing at all because in verse 63, Jesus said, It is the spirit that quickeneth, the flesh profiteth nothing. The words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. So when you compare that with 1 Corinthians 2, 13 and 14, what we see is that we understand the Holy Spirit teaches us the Word of God by comparing the words of Scripture. All right, So we're going to define the Bible by the Bible. That's our method. So what's, what would be interesting, imagine if you brought a friend to tonight's Bible study that the only thing they know about church is they go and they, they kneel and stand and kneel and stand and they hear a little a homily read, and then they leave. And that's their understanding of church. Do you know how foreign our method of Bible study is to these folks? And honestly, this really is a difference between the way that we and other independent Baptist churches study as well. We just look at the words, and we look at the words, and we look at the words. And so we're going to do that tonight to help us explain some of the things that have happened in Zechariah. And that's the heartbeat behind this Bible study is to show you, in, in a sermon, I'm not going to take the time to do what we're going to do tonight. I'll just say, this passage, if you cross-reference your Bible, it, this is what it means. And I'm glad that often you all accept that, but I want you to see why those statements are true. And we're going to do one of those tonight. So go back with me to Zechariah chapter 1. Let's have a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for your faithfulness to us. Lord, there are a lot of folks who need you. Lord, I pray that Brenda's knee will heal quickly from this surgery. And Lord, I pray that, um, that as our building progresses, that it will go smoothly. And Father, I pray for uh, the, the youth department and people who are discipling around the building. Lord, please be with all these ministries tonight and help them. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, in Zechariah chapter 1... In the vision about the rider among the myrtle trees, look at what it says in verse uh, 9. Then said I, O my Lord, what are these? And the angel that talked with me said unto me, I will show thee what these be. And the man that stood among the myrtle trees answered and said, These are they whom the Lord hath sent to walk to and fro through the earth. And they answered the angel of the Lord that stood among the myrtle trees and said, We have walked to and fro through the earth, and behold, all the earth sitteth still and is at rest. So 
when I was teaching through this, I mentioned I don't know what the meaning is of the speckled horses and, and those things. The Bible doesn't really give us anything on that because this is the only place in the Bible where you have a speckled horse. So I, I don't have any information from the Bible on what that means. But we can get an understanding of what's happening in the text by this phrase where it says in the middle of verse 10, These are they whom the Lord hath sent to walk to and fro through the earth. And then, so he sent them to do it in the middle of verse 11. We have walked to and fro through the earth. So whoever these are, they did what God said for them to do. Now, the to and fro in the earth is an interesting statement. And it could be, go to, keep your place here. We're going to be all over, but go start here. Keep your place in Zechariah. Go to the book of Job. And I'm sure you all know what I'm going to reference right here, Job chapter 1, verse 6. Job 1, 6. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. Now, the sons of God there, does that save people? Does that save people? No, no. Remember, son of God is a direct creation of God. All right, so um, keep your place here. You might just want to you know, tear out, if you have any maps left, tear that out and put it in Zechariah. And go with me to uh, Luke chapter 3. Luke chapter 3. Look at verse 38. Lineage of Christ. Remember that Luke presents Jesus Christ as the perfect man, so it takes his genealogy all the way back to Adam, the first man. So look at verse 38, Luke 3, 38, which was the son of Enos, which was the son of Seth, which was the son of Abraham, which was the son of God. All right, you see that? So he was a son. Here it says he was the son of God. Now, was Adam Jesus? No, no, he was the first man, and he was a, a direct creation of God. He wasn't born, he was created. Angels aren't born, they're created, all right? Um, so now go back to Job with me, chapter 1 and verse 6. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came also among them. And the Lord said unto Satan, Whence comest thou? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro in the earth and from walking up and down in it. All right, go to Job chapter 2 and verse 2. And the Lord said unto Satan, From whence comest thou? And Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro in the earth and from walking up and down in it. So if we go back to Zechariah chapter 1, these horses are sent to and fro in the earth. So are these demonic beings? Is that what's happening here? No, I don't think that's it. Be, I, I want, and, and here's why. One of the things that I want you to see is just finding the same phrase somewhere else in the Bible, that doesn't mean that it's talking about the same thing. So what is going to tell us whether it's talking about the same thing or not, whether it's a, an actual cross-reference. How will we know that? Context. Context. Remember, there are, there are three rules that are vital in your understanding of the Bible. All right? The first one is context. So a text taken out of its context is a pretext. You can't, you can't take a passage out of its context and have it prove something. Okay? It's just, it's just not going to work. The second rule is a lot like the first rule. The second most important rule of Bible study is context. If you take a passage out of its context, you're really going to be messed up. And the reason that people mess up their Bible study so much is because they take verses out of context. What do you think the third most important rule is? <laughs> context. Context, context, context. That's how you can always tell. Now, an example of this, go to Zechariah chapter 14. 
Look at verse 1. Behold, the day of the Lord cometh, and thy spoil shall be divided in the midst of thee. So, boy, if you go to... We're not going to take the time to go there today, but if you look at the book of Joel, you see the day of the Lord all the time. So if you want to just take your Bible study program and punch in the day of the Lord and start reading it, it doesn't always mean the same thing. And the context will always define it. But the day of the Lord is always something to do with the, with the return of Christ, either the rapture or His return to the earth or the millennium. The day of the Lord always has something to do with the return of Jesus Christ. How do you know which of those events that day of the Lord is talking about? The context. I used to teach that the day of the Lord was always the millennium, the day of Christ was the rapture, and the day of God was eternity. How many of you remember me teaching that? Then I really looked through it again through the Scriptures, and it's a, that's a pretty good um, general application. But there are times when it doesn't mean that. So when it doesn't mean, meet that specific outline, how do you know? The context. The context will tell you what that's dealing with. So as we're comparing this to and fro in the earth, in, we're not going to go there, but in Daniel chapter 12, the Bible says in the, at, the, at the end times it's referring to, men are going to be running to and fro in the earth. Well, can I ask you a question? Are men running to and fro in the earth? I've been in Africa. I've been in Argentina. I've been in Canada. I've been in Mexico. I've been in England and Ireland, Scotland, Switzerland, Wales. I've been all over. So how are we able to do this? Well, technology, airplanes, cars, we're able to run to and fro in the earth. So is this passage talking about us? No. No. How are we going to know what this passage in Zechariah is talking about? When we're talking about context, the, the best way to use the principle of context is you begin in the verse itself. All right, what words are surrounding it that will define it? What are the qualifying words? Um, keep your place here. Go to Ephesians chapter 4. I'll give you an example. We'll get Ephesians 4 and 2 Thessalonians 2. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 30. All right, the Bible says, And grieve not the Holy Spirit of God. Now stop there. Everybody look up here. Don't read on. Stop right there. All right? Now, we used to, Laura and I, we're in a church where the pastor would say, Okay, put your Bibles away and look up here. He'd read the verse, put your Bibles away and look up here. Don't do that. <laughs> I just want to stop here for a second. So, it says, And grieve not... The Holy Spirit of God. All right? Now, a preacher could pull that out and talk about if you grieve the Holy Spirit of God, you're going to lose your salvation. When you grieve the Holy Spirit, you lose your salvation. How many of you have ever heard it in that context? Right? Well, the best way to understand that phrase is in its closest, immediate context. And so often when there's a... When there's a a statement that God, of course, knew would be a problem in Christianity. He answers it immediately. All right, so go back to the verse. And grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby ye are sealed unto the day of redemption. So isn't that good? So as a believer, I can grieve the Holy Spirit, and I shouldn't do that. Why shouldn't I do that? Because He sealed me until the day of redemption. I should want to please Him, not grieve Him. But my grieving Him doesn't cause me to lose that sealing. Isn't that a blessing? So what are we saying? That immediate context helps us to understand what that phrase means. All right? Go to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. You know, a lot of people are concerned with the devil or with the Antichrist. And, you know, there are a lot of people that want to study who the Antichrist is. Well, I would rather study who Jesus Christ is. Amen? That's what we ought to do. 
So look at what it says, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, and look at verse uh, 8. And when and then shall that wicked, see he's capitalized, that wicked be revealed. And so that wicked one, it's going to come into the world. You know, there are a lot of people that believe that the technical term is dualists. So there is, an equal, there, there is an evil force in the world and there's a good force in the world. And we're not talking about, I am your father, Luke. There's a good force in the world and an evil force. That's just not the truth. That, well, yes, there is a good force in the world and there's an evil force in the world, but they're not equal. All right, so the immediate context defines it. And then shall that wicked be revealed whom the Lord shall consume after a terrible long fight that he can barely get through. No, whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming. So that wicked is coming. And it's capitalized because that's a proper noun. So wicked is a name for Satan and for the Antichrist who's going to be coming. And so when it says he shall and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming, look at Revelation chapter 20. Look at verse 11. And I saw a great white throne and him that sat on it from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away and there was found no place for them. So what is the brightness of His coming? When Jesus Christ reveals His glory. He's concealing it now. Do you remember when Moses said to God, show me your glory? And He put Him in the cleft of the rock and He put His hand over Him and He showed Him His hind parts and He still came down from the mountain and He was shining so much that people couldn't look at Him. When Jesus Christ revealed His glory, on the Mount of Transfiguration, that was simply a portion of His glory. It's either that or God gave them a special ability to be in His presence. So it's one of those two because the Bible says no man can see God and live, right? So what's happening at, this, at the great white throne judgment is Jesus Christ is revealing Himself in all of His glory and the heaven has to flee away. Why? Because Satan has been there. The earth has to flee away because sin is there. Because no sin can stand in his presence. So the Bible says he's going to destroy him with the brightness of his coming. What are we doing? We're just looking at verse after verse, comparing Scripture with Scripture to understand the text. But the best understanding is the closest context. So, in a, the, so if we're looking at context... The, the, the closest context, that begins in the verse. And then we would spread that out to the chapter. What's being spoken of in the chapter? Go to Ephesians chapter 1. That fleeing from his face. I always think of that Revelation chapter 6 where the, the kings of the earth and the great men and noblemen, and they... they hide and they call unto the rocks and the mountains fall on us and hide us from the face of him that sitteth on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb that psalm 67 where it says um, cause thy face to shine upon us that's the kingdom that's when people turn to god that's when the jews turn to god so some of them want to accept jesus christ and they want to see his face the others who are in their sin they want to be hidden from the face of God because that's their judgment. And we'll see some of that in a minute. Um, where did I tell you to go? Ephesians 1. All right. Look at Ephesians chapter 1. I may have said Ephesians 6, but I didn't mean it. Okay. Ephesians chapter 1. Look at verse 4. According as He hath chosen us in Him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to Himself, according to the good pleasure of His will. All right, so those two verses. He's chosen us in Him and He's predestinated us. How many of you think that's caused some confusion in Christianity? A little bit, right? Well, what's the immediate context? 
Well, the words in Him, in Him, look at it, or in Christ. Look at the end of verse 3, in Christ, uh, before Him, in love at the end of verse 4. Um, the end of verse 6, accepted in the Beloved. So in Him, look at verse, uh, verse 10, even in Him. In whom, verse 11. So it's all about anyone who's in Christ. How do we get in Christ? Verse 12, that we should be to the praise of His glory who first trusted in Christ. Well, how do you trust in Christ? In whom ye also trusted after that ye heard the word of truth. Faith cometh by hearing, hearing by the word of God. Romans 10. In whom also, after that ye believed, you were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise, which is the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession unto the praise of His glory. So what is this predestination? What is this being chosen? Well, Jesus Christ is the chosen one. Jesus Christ is the elect. If you're in Him, then you're elect. If you're in Him, then you're, gonna, then you're going to... Um, He's going to abound to you in all wisdom and prudence. All of these things are true of anyone who is first in Christ. So you have the statement that might be confusing, but if you just read on, it clears it up. All right? So context is important. You start with the immediate context of the verse, the immediate context of the chapter, and then you move to what is the book? What is that book of the Bible talking about? Who is that book addressed to? Whose mail am I reading? So now let's go to Zechariah and let's apply that, this method of Bible study. Let's apply it to the to and fro. All right, so look with me at chapter 3 of Zechariah and verse 9. Oh, look at verse 8. Hear now, O Joshua. Now, remember, this is not Joshua as in Joshua and Caleb. This is the, the priest. Um, Hear now, O Joshua, the high priest, thou and thy fellows that sit before thee, for they are men wondered at. For behold, I will bring forth my servant, the branch. Now, do you see the way that that word branch is written in your Bible? Do you think that might have some special significance? All right. So when I was in Bible college, I think Laura and I had this class together, a, a teacher named Brad Strand. He had us go through the Bible and mark every time the word seed appeared and every time the word branch appeared and a few other phrases like that. He wanted us to understand that these mean the same thing all the way through the Bible. They mean the same thing all the way through the Scriptures. So the branch is Jesus Christ. And when we get there, we'll trace that down in the Bible. But look at what it says in verse 9. For behold, the stone that I have laid before Joshua, upon one stone shall be seven eyes. Behold, I will engrave the graving thereof, saith the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of that land in one day. And that's a tremendous verse. But I want you to see is that on this stone, <clears throat> there are seven eyes. Seven eyes. Okay, so what do we have? We're looking at this phrase of to and fro, and now we're seeing this seven eyes. All right, so now go with me to chapter 4 and verse 10. For who hath despised the day of small things? For they shall rejoice and shall see the plummet in the hand of Zerubbabel. Now look at this. With those seven, they are the eyes of the Lord, which run to and fro in the whole earth. All right, so now we have to and fro. And now we have these seven eyes. And it's defined as the seven eyes, which run to and fro in the earth. So now when we put it together, we really don't have any idea what we're talking about yet. So we need to search a little bit more and see what we can find. Look at Second Chronicles. What are these seven eyes trying to do? Second Chronicles chapter 16. I don't know why, but all of a sudden that reminded me of that uh, Dick Van Dyke show episode where she had eyes in the back of her head. I don't know if you remember that. Eyes everywhere. Second Chronicles chapter 16. All right, Second Chronicles chapter 16, look at verse 9. For the eyes of the Lord 
run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong in the behalf of them whose heart is perfect toward him. Herein thou hast done foolishly, therefore henceforth thou shalt have wars. So what this passage is teaching us is these seven eyes of God. They run to and fro in the earth seeking for somebody to show himself mighty. So now go back to Zechariah chapter 1. So remember what's happening in this vision. Verse 8, I saw by night, and behold, a man riding upon a red horse, and he stood among the middle trees that were in the bottom. So remember, myrtle trees, that is the, that's the word Hadassah. That's Esther, okay? And myrtle trees apply to Israel, but they apply to Israel, and this is another thing that we ought to trace down through the Scriptures. It might be another Wednesday night Bible study. It deals with Israel in the millennium. All right, when they're at rest. That's the idea. But here it's saying, I saw by night, and behold, a man riding upon a red horse, and he stood among the myrtle trees that were in the bottom. So in a low place. They're in a low place. And so what God is doing now is he's sending something to and fro in the earth. But we know that what he sends to and fro in the earth are his eyes, his seven eyes so that he can find someone to whom he can show himself mighty. Have you ever felt like you're alone? Have you ever felt like you're in the middle of trouble and nobody cares? Well, God is searching for someone to bless. You need to get his attention and say, bless me. See, here what God is doing is he's searching for a way to bless Israel. But there's some more information that we can trace down on this, all right? So, go to Revelation chapter 5. So, what I'm going to try to do now is give us some more information about the eyes of the Lord and the to and fro in the earth and what God wants to do with Israel and see if we can learn some more about it. So, Revelation chapter 5. And look at verse 6. And I beheld, and lo, in the midst of the throne and of the four beasts, and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent forth into all the earth. Now, we're talking about how do you know that the to and fro is not dealing with Satan going to and fro in the earth? How do we know that it is God doing this? Well, look at the immediate context of this passage. So what we have are all of the components. We have seven horns, the seven eyes, the seven spirits of God, and they're sent forth into all the earth. But I want you to see a couple of things about Jesus that it's saying here. Um, so, of course, the Lamb is Jesus Christ. I don't think I need to elaborate on that, lamb as, as it had been slain. But let me I do want to point something out. When we see Jesus, He'll still bear in His body the scars of the price He paid for us. The other thing we need to remember is that He will always have a body. Jesus Christ became like us for eternity. That's amazing. Forever. One of the, one of the blessings of the human life is we know that if we are suffering, it won't go on forever. If I am limited, that won't go on forever. Now, Jesus Christ is not limited, but He will have that body forever. All right? So a lamb, as it had been slain, having seven horns. All right? Now, we've talked about this before, and maybe this is another one of those things that we need to trace down in one of our Bible studies. When the Bible talks about seven horns... Let's not deal with the number seven yet, but just the idea of horns. What is that representing? What is it? Power. Well done. Man, I am feeling so good tonight. So it's power. Now, what does the number seven mean? Perfect. Complete. I like those two words. Perfect and complete. Another word that the Bible uses 
when it uses perfect or complete is what's another word that, that that's put in there? Mature. Mature. So when the Bible talks about God's power, God's power is mature. It, what does that mean? It's at its fullest. It's complete. And so when you see this, these seven horns, Jesus is complete in power. He has all of the power in the world. The word that we would use to describe that is omnipotent. But then the seven eyes, the seven eyes. Now, who knows what an eye is? This is, this is not, it's not a hard one. All right. But when it's talking about seven eyes, if, let, let's, let's use the same methodology that we used with the horns. So the number seven represents what? What does that always show us? Perfection, completion, maturity. So when the Bible talks about Jesus having seven eyes, what does that mean then? It is omnipresence, but it's, it's someone said omniscience, but more specifically, and those are both right, okay? Those are both right. But in this, what we're talking about specifically here is he sees everything. Now, of course, in the occult, you have, somebody tell me what I'm thinking of right here, the, the all-seeing eye. All right, well, it's interesting that in the Bible, it's not the occult because it's seven eyes. So when it talks about Jesus Christ, this lamb having seven horns, he's all-powerful, seven eyes, that is that he sees everything. And then look at what it says. The lamb, as it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, the seven spirits of God sent forth into all the earth. So what are these eyes doing? We already know that these eyes are searching for someone to show himself mighty to. Now, remember in the passage in Second Chronicles, they, they didn't want him, and so they were going to have continual war. All right? But that's to show himself mighty. That's not the only thing that his eyes do. I want you to see something um, here. Look at chapter 3, Revelation 3. And unto the, verse 1, And unto the angel of the church in Sardis write, These things saith he that hath the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know thy works, that thou hast a name, that thou livest, and art dead. All right? So, when Jesus Christ is describing himself here, he says he has the seven spirits of God. The seven spirits of God. Now, there's more, obviously more that we could talk about in this verse. But I want to deal with just the seven spirits. Where do we find these seven spirits of God? So look at chapter 1, Revelation 1. Look at verse 4. John, to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace be unto you and peace from him which is and which was and which is to come. I love that. That's Jesus Christ. He's eternal. All right. And from the seven spirits of God, where, where are these seven spirits of God? Which are before his throne. Seven spirits of God are before the throne of God. All right. So we see that. Now go to chapter 4, Revelation 4. Let's see if we can learn something else about these seven spirits of God. Look at verse 5. And out of the throne proceeded lightnings and thunderings and voices. And there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. So, do you get the impression that... God is doing everything He can to explain something to us that we don't have the capacity to receive. So what we have are the seven eyes of God are the seven spirits of God. And they're before the throne of God. But not only are they the seven spirits of God, they're also seven lamps of fire. So their eyes, their spirits, their lamps, not only their lamps, their lamps of fire. So what is this doing? This is describing 
something about the Spirit of God. But in describing the Spirit of God, don't forget where it is, before the throne of God, but also, chapter 5, verse 6 again, middle of the verse, a lamb as it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God. So the seven spirits of God, the seven eyes of God, the seven lamps that are lamps of fire are before the throne. They're proceeding out of the throne, but they are also a part of Jesus Christ. So what is this? This is the Bible trying to give us information about the Godhead. And we have to understand it is so much more, this concept of the Godhead is so much more complex than we can ever imagine. Because remember, any time that we describe God, we diminish Him because He's indescribable. So what the Bible does is it gives us all of these pictures, all of these descriptors about who God is so that we can begin to appreciate who He is and what He does. Now, go with me to Isaiah. So now before you do that, let's go back to chapter 4. I want to repeat this verse because this is going to tie in with the verse four, or chapter 4 and verse 5 of uh, Revelation. And out of the throne proceeded lightnings and thunderings and voices, and there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. So what we're seeing here is the Bible is giving us some more explanation of what these seven spirits of God do. Go to Isaiah chapter 4 and verse 4. Uh, we have to read verse 2 because it's so cool. In that day, does that is there anything important there yet? So that day, that's the day the Lord returns, either in the rapture or in the kingdom. We'll, I think we'll be able to tell from the context what's being spoken of. In that day shall what? The branch of the Lord be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the earth shall be excellent and comely, for them that are escaped of Israel. Man, that's just, I just love that. So you see, you have several of our key words right there, that day and the branch, that day and the branch. All right, so now go to verse 4. And when the Lord shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and shall have purged the blood of Jerusalem from the midst thereof. Now, how's he going to purge? How's he going to get rid of this filth and purge their blood? How's he going to do that? By the spirit of judgment and by the spirit of burning. So what did we have before the throne of God? The seven lamps of God. They're burning with fire. So what, what the Revelation chapter 4 in verse 5 passage is teaching us is those seven eyes of God, which are the seven spirits of God and the seven lamps of God, not only are they going to and fro in the earth searching, searching for someone to show himself mighty, but it's also looking to judge. God knows what's in the hearts of man. He knows. He knows. Now, go with me to... I want you to see... Yeah, we have time to do this. This idea of lamps, there's judgment involved with lamps. So let's trace that down. Go to Judges chapter 7. In verse 16... All right, so this is the passage about Gideon, Judges chapter 7. Look at verse 16. And he divided the 300 men into three companies, and he put a trumpet in every man's hand with empty pitchers and lamps within the pitchers. Look at verse 20. And the three companies blew the trumpets and break the pitchers and held the lamps in their left hands and the trumpets in their right hands to blow withal. And they cried, The sword of the Lord... And of Gideon, the sword of the Lord and of Gideon. Now, how many of you think that that sword of the Lord was a blessing to the people that were about to experience it? No, no. 
So these seven lamps, when you see these lamps, it's about judgment. Go to Nahum, Nahum chapter 2. Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Micah, Nahum. You could name your child Nahum, but it always sounds like you're clearing your throat. Nahum! <coughs> Nahum! <coughs> All right, Nahum chapter 2 and verse 3. You don't get quality humor like that anywhere else, but thanks, Baptist. <laughs> the shield of his mighty men is made red. The valiant men are in scarlet. The chariots shall be with flaming torches in the day of his preparation. And the fir trees shall be terribly shaken. The chariots shall rage in the streets. They shall jostle one against another in the broad ways. They shall seem like torches. They shall run like the lightnings. Remember what was proceeding out of the throne of God? The thunderings and lightnings and these seven lamps. So it's judgment, judgment. Um, so go back to Isaiah 4.4. 4. When the Lord shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and shall have purged the blood of Jerusalem from the midst thereof by the spirit of judgment and by the spirit of burning. So we've learned that the Holy Spirit, that the seven spirits of God, the seven eyes of God, the seven lamps of God, that's God going to and fro in the earth seeking for someone to show himself mighty or seeking someone to judge. What side do you want to be on? Right? And so that's what we find in the Bible. Go back to Zechariah chapter 1. You know what? Do, let's do this. Go to Isaiah chapter 11. And look at verse 2. We'd better get verse 1 because you're going to see some, one of our key words again. And there shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse... And a branch shall grow out of his roots. Now look at what the Bible says. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The Spirit of wisdom and of understanding. The Spirit of counsel and might. The Spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. This Holy Spirit that is running to and fro in the earth, looking for someone to bless or seeing what every, everything that God does. Keep your place here in Isaiah. Go to Hebrews chapter 4. Look at verse 12. For the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight, but all things are naked and opened unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do. The eyes. How many eyes does he have? Seven eyes. Perfect sight. Back to Isaiah chapter 11. What the Holy Spirit wants to do for us is this. There are seven characteristics of the Holy Spirit that are mentioned here. All right? So in verse 2, the first thing the Holy Spirit will do is the Holy Spirit shall rest upon Him. The Holy Spirit wants to rest on us and be in us. Remember, this is Old Testament, and the Holy Spirit was going to come and rest on Jesus Christ. Remember the Holy Spirit descended on Him like a dove? All right. And in the Old Testament, you had Jesus Christ saying to His disciples, John chapter 14, the Holy Spirit which is with you and shall be in you. All right. So the Holy Spirit wants to be on us and in us now, that's the first thing. 
Then the second thing is, so the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom. He wants to give you wisdom. If any man ask wisdom, let him ask of God, who giveth to all men liberally and upbraideth not. Have you ever been in a situation? Almost every time I go into a counseling situation or somebody has a problem, what's going on in my mind is I'm just praying, God, give me wisdom. Help me to say the right thing. You're, has someone ever come to you with a problem and you don't have any idea what to tell them? You need the wisdom of God right there. Well, that's what the Holy Spirit wants to give us, the spirit of wisdom. How about this, the spirit of understanding? You know, there are a lot of people that have knowledge, but they don't have understanding. I, I, I know preachers, and they talk about how much Bible they read, and they're in the Bible reading it constantly. Ten chapters a day, 40 pages a day. If you read 40 pages a day in your Bible, you read it through every month. There are guys that just spend hours and hours and hours in the Bible, but then you hear them preach it and they have no understanding of it. The Holy Spirit wants to give us wisdom, but the Holy Spirit also wants to give us understanding. You know, we, especially in our day and age, parents, you need wisdom and you need understanding to help guide your young people. It's really important. And of course, young people, we all need that wisdom. We all need that understanding. How about this? The spirit of counsel. The spirit of counsel. And the Bible doesn't say, it doesn't give us what kind of counsel. So I would assume that it's both where it's giving and receiving counsel. The Holy Spirit will counsel us through his word, but the Holy Spirit will also enable us to give godly counsel to others. So when I'm speaking to our disciplers, man, I, I try to emphasize this over and over again. Don't tell your disciple what you think about something. Tell them what God says about it. It's so different. Well, I'll tell you what I'd tell them. I don't care what you'd tell them. What would God tell them? It's really important. So that spirit of counsel, this is what God wants to do for us, is what the Holy Spirit does. And of might. And of might. Be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. Take unto you the whole armor of God. Why? So that we can stand in the evil day and having done all to stand... The Holy Spirit wants us to be mighty. And I wonder how many of us ever feel that way. How many of you have ever not felt mighty in the Lord? Would you raise your hands? You're in a situation and you're just praying that God will give you strength. Well, the Bible says that God will give you strength. All right, might. Then the spirit of knowledge, the spirit of knowledge. That's not a stupid charismatic word of knowledge. That's God giving you knowledge to know what to do. And it's knowledge from the Word of God. The Bible has answers for all of these things. And then the fear of the Lord. A person that is genuinely walking in the Spirit, who is filled with the Spirit, they fear God. They fear God. Now, I know that you all have heard me say this, but I'm going to say it again. I have to say it every time. It is not reverential awe. It's fear. It's fear. You know, when you're in that accident and the car's spinning around, it's out of control, you're not experiencing, experiencing reverential awe. Right? You're experiencing fear. Fear. Uh, you know, the Bible describes this day and age as no fear of God in their eyes. You know, comedians love to mock God and Christianity. Um, well, we as Christians, we need to fear God. We need to realize there is a righteous and a holy God whose righteousness will not be spurned. His justice will be complete. You know, the Bible talks about how that the Holy Spirit's going to come. So Jesus is going to come and He's going to baptize the world with the Spirit and with fire. Those people are praying for the baptism of fire. That's the stupidest thing in the world. Can I ask you, how many of you want to be baptized in fire? Do you know what that's called? The lake of fire. That's what he's going to bring to the world. So we need to fear God. We need to fear God. So in Zechariah chapter 1, let's finish up there. Look at verse 9. Then said I, O my Lord, what are these? And the angel that talked with me said unto me, I will show thee what these be. 
And the man that stood among the myrtle trees answered and said, These are they whom the Lord hath sent to and fro through the earth. And they answered the angel of the Lord that stood among the myrtle trees and said, We have walked to and fro in the earth, and behold, all the earth sitteth still and is at rest. Then the angel of the Lord answered and said, O Lord of hosts, how long wilt thou not have mercy on Jerusalem and on the cities of Judah, against which thou hast indignation these threescore and ten years? And the Lord answered the angel that talked with me with good words and comfortable words. So the angel that communed with me said unto me, Cry thou, saying, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, I am jealous for Jerusalem and for Zion with a great jealousy. I am very sore displeased with the heathen that are at ease, for I was but a little displeased, and they helped forward the affliction. Therefore thus saith the Lord, I am returned to Jerusalem with mercies. My house shall be built in it, saith the Lord of hosts, and a line shall be stretched forth upon Jerusalem. Cry yet, saying, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, My cities through prosperity shall yet be spread abroad, and the Lord shall yet comfort Zion, and shall yet choose Jerusalem. So when we look at this to and fro, and what the Holy Spirit of God does, what this passage is teaching us is that the Holy Spirit of God saw that the children of Israel, these they'd gone back in the land, they're in a low place, they should not have been in a low place, they should have had the spirit of might and of power and all of this stuff that we just looked at, They should have had all of that, but they're at rest. They're in a low place and they're at rest when they should have been fighting to build, to finish what God had told them to build. And so what God is going to do is God is going to strengthen them, but He's also going to punish them. He's going to move them ahead. His work is going to be accomplished. So when we think, we put all of that together, the thing that we need to think about, the things that we need to think about are, first of all, that the Holy Spirit wants to bless us. God wants to bless us. Secondly, He knows everything that's going on. Thirdly, His work is going to be accomplished. And and then fourth, what side of that do you want to be on? Do you want to be a vessel of honor? Do you want to be a vessel of dishonor? I want to become engaged in God's work. Amen? And that's the message to the children of Israel that Zechariah is writing to. That's the message of Zechariah. And that's the seven spirits of God and seven eyes. Anybody have a question? Was it interesting? Did you enjoy that tonight? Tying that all that together? Well, amen. Let's all stand together.